I'm glad you're here this morning. This will be a very special day. Rabbi Michael Panitz and I were on a television show together not long ago. It was the lowest rated television show in the history of television. So we decided two things. We would take our show on the road, and the next time we're on, we're going to call our show Friends. <laughs> would you please welcome Rabbi Michael Panitz? I call this interview with a rabbi, so tell us, what is a rabbi? I thank you for the friends, even before I answer. That's, that's touching and warm. The Hebrew word rabbi means my teacher. In fact, you would know this better than I, but I think that Jesus is called rabbi at one or more places in the Gospels. My teacher. And the term, which is not found in the uh, Hebrew scriptures, does enter into Jewish history a few generations before the, the time of Jesus and has continued for 2,000 years, plus until this very day. The word rabbi denotes a person who is a religious teacher. And I myself try to be true to the precise meaning of that word. Whether it's uh, preaching, whether it's counseling, whether it's sitting with a seminar group, whether it's just interacting, I try to channel my energies to bring teachings from our religious tradition, teaching, teachings from the Word of God to help people in their lives. I can't think of a better way to spend the energies that God has given me. Was this something that came to you one day, Michael, uh, that you were to be a rabbi? Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got to that place. It came to me, although not in one day, it was more like the, the lifting of some clouds and then you see the sky. Uh, I grew up in a rabbinic household. Uh, my late father was a rabbi. He served pulpits in New York City and then Washington, D.C., where I was born, and then Patterson, New Jersey, where I spent most of my childhood. Uh, very happy to be part of a rabbinic family. Um, for anyone here who is a PK, a preacher's kid, I want to tell you that uh, my father and mother knew the secret of how to be servants of the community, but not put me inappropriately in the spotlight. I had, had my privacy. So I always had good feelings about the rabbinate, but I knew I was too close to it ever to decide while I was still living at home, would that be right for me? And so the process only began seriously when I was an undergraduate at university, away from home in Philadelphia. And that's when I began to think, carefully about what are my talents, what are my, uh, my callings, if I could begin to discern them as such. And through a process of learning and spiritual search, uh, I found my way towards the rabbinate. I tried other positions as well, just to make sure I wasn't stumbling into it or, or simply following a well-worn pathway. I enjoyed other work, in, especially in the social service sector. I worked in the unemployment field trying to get jobs for people. But ultimately, I recognized that the combination of humanitarianism and spirituality that I wanted to make my life focus would best be done as a rabbi. You're wearing a, a yarmulke, is that what you call it? Yes. Is that part of rabbinic tradition, or is that something that uh, came along later? in the development of Judaism? 
The Yiddish word yarmulke, which is equivalent to the Hebrew word kippah, you may hear either term, means a skull cap or some head covering. Uh, this is what we would call a religious custom. We have certain commandments which we would say have the force of religious law. This rather is a custom which developed over time. And the idea was to show that God is above us. It's actually the opposite of the American uh, symbolic vocabulary. In America, you take your hat off when you're in a public building. Right? Members of the military are very conscious of the, the code of when you wear your cover and when you don't. In Judaism, it's the same message, but the opposite gesture. We cover the head to show respect for heaven, to say we understand that wherever we are, God is looking upon us and watching us. If I could get one of those with a New York Yankees logo on it, I might you, wear one. You could indeed, but you'd have trouble in Queens where they root for the Mets. Tell <laughs> us <laughs> a little bit about your family and who you are as a family person. Yes. Uh, my wife, Sheila, and I will be married 25 years this coming August, and uh, we're already beginning to think about having some sort of shindig in our, in our synagogue. Uh, we're blessed with three children, a, a daughter and two sons, and uh, I even see one of my daughter's former classmates in, in the congregation today uh, from the Chesapeake Bay Academy, which is a school for children with special learning needs. So our daughter Emily now works as a preschool teacher's aide in a Montessori school in Virginia Beach. Uh, our son, Zeke, is a songwriting major at the Berkeley College of Music in, uh, in Boston. And our youngest son, uh, Benjamin, is a 10th grader in Norfolk at the Granby High School, where he divides his time between advanced placement courses and running track and being a kid. <laughs> uh, the, the family is a source of great, great joy. If I'm permitted to single out one relationship, our daughter, who has overcome certain uh, disabilities, neurological disabilities, has really taught me in a very powerful way that what you do well in life are the blessings that God has given you. But the image of God inside of you is at a still more fundamental level. The image of God isn't how well you speak or how fast you run a mile. The image of God is something that's very precious and essential to the core of every single one of us. So not only am I blessed with a loving family, but also a family that has taught me life lessons. One of the more difficult aspects of being Jewish today is you know, we read about the struggles in Israel just about every time we pick up the newspaper. And, of course, then there was the bombing in, in Kenya this past week. Help us to sort that out. You know, what is really going on? How can so many people, groups that say we love God, we believe in God, we, we pray for peace, be at war all the time? Israel is a beleaguered and besieged country today. And in, in answering your question and speaking to your audience, um, since we grew up in the same generation and in more or less the same place, uh, we were both teenagers when the popular song was Give Peace a Chance. All we are saying is, give peace a chance. And I very much want our congregation to know that Israelis have done that. They they've went to Camp David, the American presidential retreat in the year 2000, prepared to be more than generous in, in uh, splitting the loaf 
we'll take a little bit of property, you take a little bit of property, let's just live in peace. And the response that Israelis have had to live with since then has just been an intensification, I won't even say of war, but of terrorism, of a targeting of innocence. And so I grieve for Israel, and and I hope that many of us here today share that sentiment. And I want to see Israel living a peaceful existence uh, behind secure borders, and I want to see its neighbors enjoying the same blessings of peace and security. When do you think that will happen, if, if you see it in the near future? Or? I think that it can only happen, given the, given the state of the human heart, I think it can only happen when Israel's will to survive becomes the consensus of what everybody knows, and when nobody thinks it will be possible to carve up that country bit by bit until there's nothing left but a few uh, sand grains on the Mediterranean. So while I would, I would wish to be able to vault forward a few steps, I think that uh, peace will only come to that region when all the parties there have given up the ideal of having only one religion and not several religions sharing in the states of that region. We're in the second day of Hanukkah, and as Christians we hear about Hanukkah and we see candles being lit and we see menorahs out in in public view, Uh, but few of us understand some of the the deeper meanings of Hanukkah. We, We tend to relate it to our Christmas, but tell us about Hanukkah. You have good Hebrew pronunciation. The word Hanukkah means dedication, dedication. And the word menorah means candelabrum. And those two terms help us to understand the core meaning of the holiday. It's based on an historical event which took place in the year 165 before the Common Era. So that is to say uh, 21 and two-thirds centuries ago. And it took place in the land of Israel. The Jewish people was living as part of a larger empire. It was called the Seleucid Empire. It was run by pagans by successors of Alexander the Great. They'd been part of that empire for centuries, and for the most part, peacefully, the emperors, all of them, except for one I'll I'll mention in a minute, had the understanding that to govern over a religiously diverse population, you have to allow people to have their freedom of religious conscience. But one of the rulers in that dynasty, his name was Antiochus IV, He had certain delusions of grandeur. He even called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, like the word epiphany. Antiochus and God has appeared to me personally in a way that God didn't appear to anybody else. And Antiochus understood that his tradition could not allow anyone else's to survive. So he tried to unify his people, but forcibly. He didn't respect their diversity of religious opinion and he prohibited the practice of Judaism. He and his quislings took over the Jerusalem temple and turned it into a pagan shrine. They put a pagan altar to Antiochus' own god on top of the altar that was commanded in the Bible. That and the persecution of Jews who wouldn't go along sparked a revolt. The revolt took three years. When it was successful, the general of the revolt, his name was Judah, Judah the Maccabee, and his men 
reoccupied the temple in Jerusalem and Hanukkah dedication, they rededicated it to the worship of the one God. They lit the lamps that were in the temple, the menorah, the candelabrum, and that's why the menorah to this day is the symbol of the Hanukkah celebration. The celebration lasts for eight days. We're now in the second day of it. Uh, second day of eight, it'll go through this coming Saturday. Why eight days? Because the biblical holiday of tabernacles, which was the last holiday just before Hanukkah, was an eight-day-long holiday. After the pattern of tabernacles, they had the eight days. Nowadays, we celebrate Hanukkah by lighting these candles, one the first night, two the second, all the way up till eight. And the idea, why one to eight? Why not eight down to one? The idea is in matters of holiness, you should always be on the ascending not on the descending. You should try to build your life so that there's more holiness tomorrow than there was yesterday. And you should build your life so that where there was great darkness in your life yesterday, you're banishing that with more and more light. So Hanukkah is a festival of enlightenment, of light, of hope, of pushing back the shadows, and it's a festival of religious freedom. That's great. Let's go back a couple months to... The, the High Holy Days, uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And again, we hear a lot about these special days in the Jewish year, but we don't have a depth of understanding. Unpack those days for us too. The word Rosh Hashanah means New Year. And the word Yom Kippur means Day of Atonement. And they constitute the high holidays, the somber holidays of our people. Another Hebrew word for them is the days of awe, the days where we have a sense of the awesomeness of God and our relationship to God, how critically important it is. Our new year takes place at the time of the autumn full moon. That's different than the ancient new year that they, they practiced in Rome, which began at the springtime, and the message is different. In the springtime, you're filled with the exuberance of the natural world. The whole world is green and the sap is flowing. In the autumn, you're thinking about other thoughts. You're thinking, am I going to make it? You're thinking, have I brought in a suitable harvest? You're thinking, have I done enough? What should I do better in the coming year? So our new year is timed in order to prompt us to think, what do we have to do to get good with God? And what do we have to do to get good with each other? So that the Day of Atonement is a day of repentance. We spend it fasting. It's a full fast. No eating, no drinking from the night before until the night after. 25 hours or so. And in that time, we spend most of our waking hours in the synagogue praying and meditating and thinking. We read the story of the book of Jonah that I'm sure many of your congregants are familiar with because it's a story of forgiveness. If even the the reprobate sinners of Nineveh. I mean, that was like sin city of the ancient world. If even they could repent, maybe we can too. Another critically important part of the Day of Atonement is that we have to forgive each other, which means we have to apologize to each other. Uh, maybe, I, maybe I dissed her, intentionally or unintentionally. Maybe I was unkind to him. Maybe I, I didn't have patience. Maybe I let some irritation come into my voice. Everybody has their own catalog 
of failings. And you're supposed to do a spiritual stock taking. And if you know you've wronged your neighbor, you're supposed to go up to that neighbor. You make the first move. Don't wait for them. Don't say, well, I'll apologize if she does. You be the first one. And that's what we try to accomplish on Yom Kippur, a healing of the interpersonal and a strengthening of the community so that we can stand as one people before a forgiving God. As you reflect upon Judaism in the larger sense of, of everything that it is and everything that it can be, what does Judaism bring to humanity? What does it bring to us? Judaism brings to the, the human family, uh, first and foremost, the awareness that we are one family. If, if you think of the story, if you think of the creation stories in Genesis, and we were singing them this morning, it was just such, such beautiful singing. I have to compliment you on the, the glory of, of the singing that I took part in. We were singing about God the creator. Well, if God is our creator... God's created all of us, God is our common parent, then why don't we act like brothers and sisters? So the, the notion of that we're all family, we're all creatures together. And that in turn should lead us to the next of Judaism's great gifts for the world, which is the golden rule. The idea that we need to behave with each other in love. As it says in Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. And who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is your neighbor. Your neighbor is also the person who lives on, quote, unquote, the wrong side of the tracks in Norfolk, for whom we're trying to collect some canned food this season. Your neighbor is also someone who lives in the third world, who doesn't understand why we wear jeans and maybe don't cover up the way they do. Uh, they're all our neighbors, and we have to find some way to love them. I think these are some of the great gifts that Judaism brings to the world. In, the, in his book, To Life, Rabbi Kushner has this quote about the Bible that I'd like you to, to respond to. No document ever written has understood the needs of the human soul as has the Bible. No other book has the power to change society, to make people say, I may not want to hear that, but it's right. Another thing to be said about the Jewish view of the Bible is that Jews don't read the Bible the way one reads a novel for the plot. You don't read it to see how it ends, nor do you read it like a newspaper or a magazine article, skimming it to get the general idea. As a contemporary scholar has put it, Jews read the Bible the way a person reads a love letter. When you read a love letter, you don't just read it for the content. You try to squeeze every last little bit of meaning out of it. Do you feel that that's true? I certainly do. I don't know how many of us know Rabbi Harold Kushner personally. He's been in town a few times in the last several years. And he was in Norfolk just this last month and spoke from the pulpit of Temple Israel. Uh, Rabbi Kushner is a man whose theology has been profoundly affected by tragedies in his own life. And there's no secret. That's why I'm saying this. Uh, he and his wife had a, a beloved son, Aaron, who died as a teenager of a rare genetic disorder. It's called progeria. He aged uh, unnaturally rapidly. And they loved him as any parents would love a child, and they, they embraced the, the uh, fragility of his short life. And when he died, they asked themselves all the questions that, 
bereaved parents would ask themselves. And uh, Rabbi Kushner, by way of answering those questions, wrote a book which became a bestseller. I hope many of you have read it. It's called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Now notice that he didn't write a book why bad things happen to good people. Sometimes we don't know. But we do know that God is with us. And that's also what I hear in his, his uh, quotation here about the Bible. It challenges us. It tells us not to be smug, not to be complacent, not to think we've got God in our back pocket, it's all worked out. God is always greater than your preconceptions about God. God doesn't ever fit naturally into our formulations because God is beyond all that. But God is also the one who speaks to us in love. And as one who speaks to us in love, we need to scrutinize every last uh, comma and nuance and why this synonym and not that synonym because it's, it's a pathway for us not to have an easy life. The Bible doesn't promise an easy life, but it tells us how to have a meaningful life. And that's why I cherish it so very much. The Jews have been assailed throughout history by any variety of other people groups and most predominantly in the 20th century, the Second World War was just so tragic with the Holocaust. How do you, as a, as a Jew, as a rabbi, look at those events, and especially the Holocaust, and, and make sense out of suffering on another level, maybe? I have great perplexity when I think about the Holocaust, and I'll even amplify that statement. I think that it's just not honest for someone to have too easy a rationalization of that Holocaust. I know the philosophical answers to the question, why did God permit it? I've, I've studied them, but I have to say the questions endure with a strength that the answers, they answer, but they don't take away the burning force of the question. So we need to live with the knowledge of how evil people can be to each other. We, we just dare not forget that, because only in knowing that can we knowingly turn away from that side of human nature and embrace the side which is good. Uh, the Bible reassures us that uh, God makes us, on the one hand, out of dust and ashes, and on the other hand, God makes us little less than the angelic, little less than divine. And so we see the different sides of human nature. Jews have often, often been the victims of the negative side of human nature that just cannot tolerate a stranger. We were the non-Muslims in the world of Islam in the Middle Ages. We were the non-Christians in Europe when Europe was called Christendom in the Middle Ages. And so as the, as the foreigner, we were the ones who were often, often attacked. And we understand that this is part of human nature which we, we all have to try to transcend. At the same time, it gives Jews a sense that these ideals that we stand for, they were worth dying for. The ideals of loving your neighbor, the ideals of showing that there's one God in the universe, that there's one standard of right and wrong. And if they're worth dying for, then today we have to take the message that they're also worth living for. How do you stay a, a real person and not succumb to some idealized rabbinical image that people want to place upon you? In a word, kids, 
when, when I have services with our younger children, I sit down on the carpeted floor of the sanctuary with them. I don't mind being silly. We sing silly songs. Uh, last Friday night, we had a song about the dreidel. And uh, all, all the Jewish kids in kindergarten learn a song. I had a little dreidel. I made it out of clay. When it's dry and ready, O oh, dreidel, I shall play. <clears throat> so I told the kids with a wink to the parents that I have a song to teach them. I have a little dreidel. I made it out of plastic. <laughs> it's not an old tradition, but I think it's fantastic. <laughs> so all the parents are smiling and all the kids are saying, Ah, oh, silly rabbi, silly rabbi. So I don't mind being silly rabbi. And when that doesn't work, then, the, then I really pull out the big guns and I teach teenagers. Those of you who've raised teenagers, those of you who remember being teenagers, those of you who are teenagers right now, you know that <clears throat> the great gift of that age is that they don't let middle-aged folks like me just rest on their laurels. They challenge us, and it's a gift. It's a, it's a blessing also. How do you build a sense of community into your, uh, into your, your congregation uh, at the same time uh, keeping people from just acquiescing to religious practice? Community in Judaism might mean something a little bit different than community in much of what I would call middle America. Uh, if anyone here grew up in an ethnic church, you know what I'm, what I'm talking about. If any of you saw my big fat Greek wedding, anyone see that? Okay, then, then you know what I'm talking about. In, in Judaism, the problem isn't narrowly creating community. The problem is having a spiritual kind of a community, not just a demographic kind of a community. People go to a synagogue, already they, they have some bond with each other. But we have to help them get beyond the, the lowest level, which is community, not faith community. And we do that by going right at the moments where American culture, in our opinion, is, is weakest where our culture teaches commercialism, we try to teach that the greatest gifts are the gifts of the heart and the gifts of the spirit. So, for example, after, after our, our Sabbath morning worship, we always sit down together to a luncheon, together. And it's humble fare. It's not as if anyone is trying to do one-upsmanship. Uh, and we sit together. And a person who is relatively affluent maybe sitting with someone who just came from the former Soviet Union a few years ago, and they don't live in the same neighborhood. Uh, a younger person may be sitting with an older person, even though they don't normally socialize across the generations. We try to structure it so that they will. And so in the fullness of community, we try to bring people to the essence of community, which is faith community. I want to push it on the, the Middle East question. A little bit. Um, if the president calls you today and said, Michael, I need you to go to Jerusalem and I'm putting you in charge of a task force that's going to pull together the major players and find a solution, what, would, what solution would you try to put out there as your agenda? My agenda would be to convince every side of the conflict that there's no way you can have a whole loaf. Uh, I would want to uh, 
push those scales from their eyes. Find some way for those scales to drop. Because when every side recognizes, I cannot drive the other party into the sea, then they will be able to make the internal discussion which will say, okay, let me focus on this particular half of a loaf. I think that's the single biggest stumbling block right now that we don't have a consensus that I can't have the whole loaf. So I think I would give a tough love message, which might be why no president has ever called me yet. <laughs> What's the half a loaf that you tell Israel to have? What I would tell Israel is that for the foreseeable future, you will be a small minority as a faith community in the Middle East. And that you'll have to understand that in the long term, you're going to be having neighborly relations with a much larger faith community that doesn't automatically look kindly upon you. And keep that in mind as you move forward. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple of scripture references now and ask you to discuss a couple of, of ideas that, that we hold very dear uh, to Christendom. Um, this is from Isaiah, and this passage is chapter 53. And we look at these verses as picturing a suffering Messiah, which then we say, this was Jesus. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. As Christians look at that, they say, that's the crucifixion. That's the event. There's definitive proof from scripture that, that Jesus was fitting into this messianic role. When I go to the eye doctor, I, I sit in his chair and he has this wonderful machine. I'm sure you've had that experience. They put the machine up in front of your eyes and then they begin changing lenses. And uh, the idea is to find just the right curvature, just the right uh, lens that will help you to see clearly. Jews and Christians, it is true, look through different lenses at the Hebrew Scriptures. We share the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it's our common mission. It's one of the points we have in common to preserve the respect for the Hebrew Scriptures in a world which would just as soon forget about them. But it's undeniable that we look at those Scriptures from different lenses. The Christian... In order to be a good Christian, and a Christian should be a good Christian, looks at the Hebrew scriptures through a lens that's called the New Testament. And therefore, what the Christian sees is something called the Old Testament. What a Jew looks through is the lens of later Jewish tradition, which is not Christian tradition. So what we see is not something that we call the Old Testament. In fact, in our, in our Bibles, it's not printed that that's the Old Testament. That's called the Hebrew Scriptures, or the Bible for us. Uh, 
So we don't automatically see the verses in Isaiah as I would expect a Christian would need to see them, namely as prefiguring the career of Jesus. We see verses such as the ones in Isaiah as speaking about the prophets in general who often suffered for their distinction of being the ones to pass God's message along to humans who didn't want to hear it. Elijah ended up being banished and fled into the desert. Isaiah perhaps was murdered by by the mob. Jeremiah was imprisoned. Zechariah, again, perhaps murdered. So Amos, banished. So we see those verses as perhaps referring to the prophets themselves who were the suffering servants in order to give God's message. And then sometimes we see those verses as applying to the Jewish people, which has often been put into the role of a suffering servant of God while trying to be what we consider a light unto the nations, a light unto the Gentiles. That's how we see these verses. I have uh, one more then. And this is uh, Psalm 22. Uh, In the New Testament, it says that Jesus quoted the first verse of this psalm from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? If you go to about the middle of this psalm, it says, A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. And then this verse, which has always sort of stunned me, because it says, They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And in the New Testament, it says that the Romans were at the foot of the cross, and that's exactly what they were doing. How could this psalm, written some 900 years before the crucifixion, actually predict that? I meant to ask you in our morning discussion, is that the uh, description in Matthew or in Mark? I believe it's Matthew. In Matthew. It's not the description in John, if I'm correct. Yeah, that's that's actually the key to uh, how I would respond. Um, It's a little presumptuous for me to tell you about the Gospels. You could tell me about the Gospels. But from what I understand of them, each of them has a different vantage point towards the meaning of Jesus and his career uh, on earth or his career in the Jewish people. The, The Gospel of Matthew, as I've read it, very much reads like an argument for Jewish listeners to help them to understand why the author of the Gospel of Matthew believes that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of their messianic prophecies. And so you have aspects of the the human pathos of, of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ultimately, a quote from the words of David. Whereas in John, uh, the Gospel of John, I get a sense of, first of all, a much greater distance from the Jewish people. Some of the most uh, anti-Jewish phrases that you have in the Passion story are found specifically in the Passion narratives in the Gospel of John rather than in the other uh, Passion narratives. And there, if I remember, when Jesus is on the cross, um, he's saying that your will is done. 
and it is fulfilled. So that you have in John a sense of, of Jesus as being really in control because he's playing out the destiny. Whereas in Matthew, you have Jesus as the person who is wondering, my God, why have you allowed this to happen to me? So I've always found that those differences of nuance are fascinating, that even contemporaries could have different views of what Jesus meant for them. Clearly for, a, for Jewish readers, the, the close fit between the Gospel of Matthew and the Psalms of David don't necessarily mean that what's described in Matthew is a fulfillment of what is foretold by David. Because we would understand, and obviously we, we ought to have a respectful disagreement on this, uh, we would understand that the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels too were written by people already men of faith, men of Christian faith, who would have understood the events of their day in, la, in the line with their already Christian consciousness. So I would see the citation of Psalm 22 as another testimonial to the biblical consciousness of the first generation of Christians. And I have to applaud how vivid was their biblical consciousness. So I've always felt that, that Jesus quoted the Psalm to draw the attention of people who knew scripture to that psalm so they could actually see that some of these other events that are taking place right now are already predicted right there. And that would then trigger some understanding of maybe who he was in a much larger sense than those people had ever realized. But I talked to you in the first service about uh, the Apostle Paul. And one thing I said was the Apostle Paul's conversion uh, would be tantamount to you driving home to Norfolk, pulling your car over, and becoming a born-again Christian. And, and I asked you to comment on that a little bit, and I thought that would be worthy of this service also. Well, first of all, if I were to pull my car over, <laughs> and my five passengers, who were very kind to come from Temple Israel, were to uh, just you know, continue driving with me, then I'd probably be back here next Sunday morning in, in the audience. <laughs> Otherwise, I might come back anyway because I've enjoyed it so much. <laughs> the conversion experience is, is so powerful. And uh, we've had wonderful conversation amongst ourselves. And I'm sure we've each had wonderful conversation with many people who come to us about conversion experiences in their lives. And it seems to me there's a common denominator here that before your conversion experience, there are so many disconnected facts in your life. And you have this here and you have that there, but you don't have a, an organizing principle that makes them all line up. It's as if you have the iron filings scattered on a page. A conversion experience is like the bar magnet that you hold under the page and then all of a sudden the iron filings line up in a particular way. Maybe such a thing happened in your life. And I think that Paul's Road, of Dam Road to Damascus account is his description of how in his life the, the different factoids of what he'd learned suddenly made a lot of sense. Now, we can only speculate. What if Paul had grown up in, uh, in India rather than in Palestine? 
would his, no, would his conversion have led him from Hinduism to Buddhism? I don't know, because in principle, these questions are not answerable. But seeing that he had such a powerful experience, it then led him to become probably the most influential uh, shaper of Christian doctrine after the, the founder's generation themselves. Um, it seems to me that what he, what he as, a, as a Jew, and by his own admonition, uh, as a, a Jew of Jews, well-trained, very committed, very zealous for his faith, that he encountered something in the resurrection that, that just turned him inside out and upside down. And earlier I said uh, in the first service, it seems that you know, either I'm right on this or you're right on this, or maybe are we both right? And, uh, and somehow there, there's a place where the revelation of Christ through the resurrection, I think, has to be examined and put out in society in a way that has integrity. And I find that that, that very often is not being done today. Well, one thing we both agree on is that God is right. And perhaps we, perhaps we come at that from different points of view. I, I understand that, that difference. Let me, uh, let me share that I've had a lot of people over the last 10 years plus that I've been privileged to serve Temple Israel in, in Norfolk. I've had a lot of people come to me for conversion training. And I also know from conversations after the first service this morning there were some people who introduced themselves to me by saying, I was Jewish until X number of years ago, and now I'm here. So I see conversions going in, in both directions. Uh, I listen to the people who want to convert to Judaism. I listen to their stories, and they all explain why either no religion or Wicca or Roman Catholic, or one of the various Protestant faith communities, or, or Islam. I've had people come from many different uh, points of view. Why it didn't work for them. And I also know of Jewish people for whom Judaism didn't work for them, and they continued moving on. So what I could infer from this by stepping back is that our faiths, express unique and precious insights. But the journey from the insight of the faith into the heart of the believer is sometimes a very perilous or torturous one. And sometimes Mr. X cannot be satisfied with the faith of his father and mother because of something about him or something about them or something about the society that he's born into. And so he moves on to another one. When he moves on to another one, does he find something radically different than what he left? Maybe he never really knew very well the one that he was leaving. So I tend to find many overlapping truths in the great religions of, of our tradition, and of course, some significant points of difference. We can't just gloss over those. Uh, I, would, I would finish this thought by saying that I subscribe to the Goldilocks theory of interfaith discussions. If we all believe in one God and we're not willing to look at any tough questions, then the porridge is too cold. If, if we come together in a spirit of disputation, you know, I'm right and you're wrong and the purpose is to prove that, then the porridge is too hot. But uh, 
I think we're getting the temperature pretty good. <laughs> That's good. Um, what do you really think about Christians and Christianity, Michael? I think that Christianity has extended the message of monotheism to hundreds of millions, maybe I could say billions of people who would not have been reached within the faith system of Judaism. And since we've been talking about Paul, I think Paul is critically important for this. Because Paul, uh, and again, just correct me if I don't have it right, uh, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, the one who is sharing the message of Christian faith with people who are not born Jews, but they're born into some pagan or some other faith system. And he's telling them, you can be embraced in covenant with the one God without going through the entire system of Judaism. Now remember that the system of Judaism includes circumcision of male infants. Now it's one thing at eight days old. Nobody really asks the eight day old you know, how you feel about this. And by the time he's nine days old, he doesn't remember it. Uh, to be a 20-year-old male, 25-year-old, 35-year-old male, and decide to go through circumcision in the days of Paul, which is to say the days before anesthesia, uh, I dare say that um, most males would not have become Christian if that would have meant becoming Jewish first. So uh, thanks to the, uh, the way in which Christianity developed, the whole message of the one God and the loving of your neighbor because there's one God is now the common property of so many people. I would have to say that this is one of God's gifts too. Final question, you get to ask it. Would you like to ask a question? Yes, thank you. What do you think is critically important for Jews to know about Christianity and conversely for Christians to know about Judaism? I think it's critically important for Christians to know about Judaism that have stood the test of time. We owe them a great debt of gratitude. I think it's very important for us to understand that. For Jews to understand about Christians, I think it's very important for you to understand how much we believe that the scriptures uh, adequately present Jesus Christ as God in the flesh. And that, uh, that looking at, at it through, even through the lens of the New Testament, as you put it, uh, can't take anything away from the fact that these were men and women who were just like you and me, and they were eyewitness accounts to something that just was devastating. I mean, they saw something that changed them profoundly. And I think sometimes it's easy uh, for Jewish people to say, uh, you know, well, Jesus was like any other rabbi. There were a lot of rabbis. Or he was like any other, you know, messianic personage. They all had a message and they all gathered a following. The things that he did and said and the things that uh, were attested to by many witnesses, I think, heap up a, a great weight of evidence that I think, I think it would be wonderful for Jews and Christians to sit and enter a dialogue about. To say, are these things really true? Is there, are there things that we could sort of toss here and say there's not enough evidence, 
but is there anything left that it's hard to refute? I think that's what, what Jews need to understand about Christians. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Rabbi Michael Pants. Michael is one of the leading voices in Tidewater for community and for hanging in there together with a message of love and grace and, and, and being a light to this community. And I uh, am uh, much appreciative of his presence here among us. He's a true brother and a true friend. Um, I look forward to doing this again sometime soon. I've asked Michael to help us close in prayer, so Michael and I will be praying together. Lights in the darkness. Dear God, Heavenly Father, oftentimes the night seems so long and so dark. This morning, you gave me a moment of blessing and grace. I was, I was running, as is my morning habit, and I saw the, the beautiful waning crescent of the moon and the brilliant star of Venus right next to it. And I realize that you give us beacons to pierce the darkness. And this too is the message of the holiday that I'm celebrating at this time. And so my prayer at this moment, dear Lord, is help all of us, each of us in our own way, each of us following the teachings of our faith traditions to find lights to pierce the darkness and still more importantly, to be lights to pierce the darkness. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for a wonderful time of learning and growing here today. Thank you that you've opened our, our hearts and our minds to understand our Jewish brothers and sisters in a deep way. We pray for Israel. We pray for peace. We pray that nations will not take up against each other, but they'll come to the table and understand what it means to give up so that they can have what they've always wanted. Father, I pray for Michael, that you would increasingly draw him close to you and teach him the depths of wisdom from your holy word. I pray for his congregation, that under his leadership, you would continue to develop a vital, vibrant community of faith. Thank you for allowing us to be partners in your work together. May yours be the honor and the glory forever and ever. In your holy name we pray, amen. Good day and God bless you.